I want to circle back and start this morning by rereading part of a quote I read last week uh, from David Foster Wallace. It's from his 2005 commencement address at Kenyon College. It's called This is Water, um, if you want to look that up later. But here's what he said in his commencement address. um, Here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid or fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. And so what he's saying basically is, look, here's some of the idols we tend to worship in our culture, and here's the end of the road of those idols. Here's what your life is going to wind up looking like if you worship those idols. Worship your body and beauty, and one day you're going to wind up feeling ugly. Worship power, and you're going to wind up feeling weak and afraid. Worship your intellect, and one day you'll wind up feeling stupid. Uh, The things that we worship shape who we are. Uh, The things that we worship shape our, our spiritual and our emotional health, and even play into our mental and our physical health. Who or what we worship can make us more healthy, or they can actually make us less healthy. Uh, Wallace actually suggests just picking any God of any of the major religions or a set of principles and devoting yourself to that. But each one of those gods will shape you in particular ways. They're not neutral. They're not just plug and play. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I I don't want to make make an argument so much about why I think the God of the Bible is the one true God, although I believe that. And And I'm not so much going to talk about why Worshiping anything other than God is a sin, although it is. Instead, I just want to lay the God of the Bible before you and talk about who he is and what he's like and ask you to think about what your life would be like if you actually worshiped him. Uh, Not in a, you know, going through the motions sort of way, but what if I worshiped him in such a way that it actually, that I actually found my joy and my delight in him. How would that shape my life if that was true of me? So Psalm 33, it's in your bulletin. I'm going to read it for us. This is God's word. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. 
Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. We pray for us. Uh, God, thank you for giving us your word and for revealing something about yourself to us. Uh, I, I pray that that would be encouraging to us to see who you are, um, that it might bring us joy, and that we might indeed respond with worship. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first thing you see in this text uh, is something of a call to worship in the first three voices. Uh, voices. First verses. Um, like Jim O'Donnell's preaching. Um, we're, we're, told to use our, we're told to use our voices to shout for joy to the Lord. Uh, to give thanks to the Lord using musical instruments. To use our hands to play these instruments skillfully as we worship. And so worship, in worshiping, we're, we're magnifying God. We're honoring God. We're, we're, we're saying to Him that, that He is great. We're praising His weightiness with music uh, and with song. Uh, C.S. Lewis said but when he was in the process of starting to believe in God that all these calls to worship in the Psalms were actually kind of a barrier to him. Because he thought, why, you know, why is God so insecure that he's constantly having to tell us that we need to praise him? Uh, and, and, and his quote was, it seems like God wants our worship like a vain woman who wants compliments. And so it was kind of, it was bothersome to him. But then he said this, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, and, and, and he goes on, mountains, stamps, um, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. Uh, can you imagine going to an amazing concert 
or a play and, and being moved by what you had seen or heard, but then you, you didn't get to stand up and applaud or cheer. You just kind of silently left the building. Can you, can you imagine going to uh, your favorite teams to, to, to one of their football games this fall and not seeing the fight songs and not cheering? Or if they win the game on the last play of the game, not going crazy about that and applauding and, and just screaming and, and telling everybody about it? Praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. Um, Praise of your team is fitting if you're a fan and it completes your enjoyment of the team. Praise of God is fitting if you're one of God's people and it completes your enjoyment of God. So here's the thing then. And this may not be true of all schools, but if, if you go to a college where football is a big deal, and you, you go to one of the games, everybody knows the fight songs, right? And they're excited about those, but nobody can remember the alma mater. Like, and, and, it, and some of you go to school, some of you, this illustration doesn't work for some of you, so you're going to have to do illustration judo and make this work for you. But, but you guys know what I'm talking about at, at a big football school. Everybody knows the fight songs. Nobody can remember any of the words of the alma mater. Uh, And so here's the question this morning. Is worship for you more like singing the fight songs or is it more like singing the alma mater? And and I know that's not a perfect illustration because this is is not a rock concert. Um, This is not a football game, but it's not a wake either. All right. Uh, We're called to shout with joy. Which obviously means that the psalmist was not a Presbyterian. Um, and, and, and probably hadn't read the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, anyway, um, I, and, and I'm not talking so much about what songs we sing or how fast or how slow or that. But what's my heart engagement like as I come to worship? Am I just singing the alma mater? Lovely stands my lovely and like okay whatever. Are you are you actually engaged in the fight songs? Are you excited about what you are singing because of the one you're singing to? Does, does that make any sense? Some of you are like I have no idea what you're talking about. Michael understands. Okay, that's good. Um, this is this is one of the reasons, kind of an aside here. Um, while, while we would love to be, if God would so allow, I, I would love for us to be more multicultural because white Presbyterians are not very good at shouting for joy. Uh, and, and I've been a white Presbyterian my whole life, both white and Presbyterian, unlike Steve Martin, but um, for those of you. Except for John, God, this is when you were supposed to say amen, John. Thank you. I'm not supposed to have to prompt you. Um, but... but you know, to, to fill out our worship and help us to understand what it is to, to shout for joy in the presence of God. And so my question for you then, as we're kind of getting into this, if worship for you is more like singing the alma mater than singing the fight song, to kind of do some, some contemplation later and, and ask yourself the question, okay, why is it like that? Why is coming into God's presence, why doesn't that bring me more joy to actually worship him. Do some self-examination. But then secondly, if it's not a leap of joy, that's okay. Um, Sing anyway. Worship anyway. Sing the gospel. 
Sing the gospel until you believe the gospel. And the gospel comes real to your heart. And, and you see the one standing behind the gospel and you are filled with joy. And so the psalmist, before anything else here, he calls us to worship. And then the psalmist gives us reasons to worship. And there, there are several that's listed here. The first one he gives us in verses 4 and 5 is kind of an overview of the, the character of God. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. God's word is upright and that reflects who he is. He is upright. He is full of integrity. The work he does, he does in faithfulness. He's reliable. He's faithful to his promises. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is filled with his steadfast love or his unfailing love. What would my life look like if I worshiped a God of unfailing love? Uh, you know, we, we sing the song sometimes, I, I will not fear though darkness come abroad or all the land, if I may only feel the touch of His own loving hand. And though I tremble when I think how weak I am and frail, my soul is satisfied to know that His love can never fail. See, knowing that the God I worship, that His love can never fail, shapes how I approach and handle the difficulties of life. Knowing His character enables me to trust Him in the midst of those difficulties. Uh, you guys may have noticed recently the, the internet outrage machine kicked in, as it, I guess it does almost daily, but there was a, uh, a Chicago Cubs game uh, and a coach pitched a ball to a kid in the stands and the kid dropped the ball and it rolled under his seat there and the guy behind him picked it up and handed it to his wife and they took a picture with her and they didn't give it back to the kid and so this is like the world blew up and everybody was was mad at this guy and what a jerk this guy was the cubs came in and gave the kid an autographed baseball from somebody People wanted the guy to be excommunicated from Wrigley Field, you know, and all that. Like, he can never come back here again. Well, then the, the kind of the rest of the story started coming out. It, it turns out that two innings before he had given that same kid a foul ball or a ball that the coach had pitched. He'd already given the kid a ball. He had given help other kids get foul balls. And what he did with a foul ball that he got in the video that everybody was mad about was he took a picture with his wife and then he handed it to another kid that nobody was aware of at all and so everybody was outraged because they didn't know the context they had isolated just this one incident and so they didn't really know his character and they didn't trust him when when you and i are faced with hard things in life if we zoom in just on that hard thing it's, it's very easy to get angry at God and to lose faith in God. And so we have to make the effort to, to zoom out, as it were, and take into account God's character. Not just the situation that we see right before us, but to actually take into account what we know of the very character of God. And when we do that, we still may not understand why we're going through what we're going through. But if we know God's character, if we know He's a God of justice, and unfailing love, that helps us to trust Him in the midst of the difficulties. We're still going to hurt. We're still going to have questions. 
And we need to know that it's okay to, to voice that hurt and to voice those questions. Uh, it, it's okay to, to ask God how his character lines up with what we see happening in the world, to, to wrestle with him about what we see happening. And that's like that's the rest of the Psalms. You see the psalmist doing this at times. But we do this wrestling from a foundation of trust in his character and trusting who he is. In fact, it's knowing his character that actually enables us to wrestle with him in prayer. Uh, to, to say, as Abraham said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? That we make our appeals to him on the basis of his character. And so if I know his character, uh, if I've seen that displayed, if I've seen his justice and his love displayed at the cross, I can trust him. If, if the God I worship is, is a God of justice and uprightness and integrity and unfailing love and faithfulness, and if I know that this God has made me his child through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, then my life can display hope and trust and confidence because I'm being shaped by what I know of the character of God. Uh, Secondly, the psalmist gives us another reason to worship God. He speaks of God's power. Verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be, he commanded, and it stood firm. So last fall, uh, I, I killed, well, I think it was my second deer, and it was a nice deer, and so we've, we had it mounted, and, and we're trying to decide where to put it in the house right now, and so y'all can pray for us about that. Um, but as, as impressive as it is, when we put our trophies, what's that? Two falls ago. Two falls ago, yeah, it took a while. Um, as impressive as it is, when we put our trophies on the wall in our houses, think about God. God has the oceans in jars on the shelves of his living room, right? That, that's what he has on this place. Like, oh, that's a nice deer you have. I made that, by the way. Like, God has the oceans in jars in his living room on display. That's power. That's power. And, and we're impressed by power, right? Rightfully so. We're impressed by power. I know when I was a kid, there was a guy, I think he used to play football for Alabama, and he did this to raise money for a children's home. They're like, he would... I think I remember this right. They would line up railroad cars and put a rope on it. He would like pull these with his teeth. Okay, just drag them. I don't remember how many there were. There were, there were a lot. Okay, we're, that's powerful. We're impressed with power. And, and having power is not necessarily a bad thing because, right, powerful people can do great things. Uh, Andy Crouch says that, that human flourishing requires the exercise of true power. Power that has been on creating the best environment for someone or something to thrive. And, and then he tells a story of an African-American painter by the name of Henry Tanner, who was a believer. And he painted a, a painting called uh, The Banjo Lesson. And it's the, the painting of a young African-American boy sitting in the lap of an older black gentleman. And he's got a banjo and he's teaching him to play the banjo. And Kraut says that this painting actually is operating on two levels. He said, on the one hand, it's a picture of the exchange of power between a teacher 
and his student. Where the student gains power without the instructor losing any of his power. And so the teacher has power, but he doesn't use that power to dominate. He uses that power to actually instruct so that the little boy can flourish. And the teacher himself actually flourishes in the proper use of the power that he's been given. But he says, on another level, this painting, which was painted in 1893, was made within a, a, broken, within this, a broken system of power. Where a, a banjo was, was kind of shorthand for a derogatory way of talking about African American culture. And, and they were used uh, in vaudeville acts when people had blackface on, kind of making fun of stereotypical black culture. Uh, and this black man painted it. And this is what Kraut said. He said, by painting a banjo lesson, Tanner was taking this visual symbol of the exploitation of his own culture and rescuing it from caricature and diminishment. He infuses this humble musical instrument and art form with all the artistry of the salons of Paris and all the dignity of classical instruments. I see this painting as a kind of restoration of image-bearing possibility. It restored dignity, agency, and beauty to a culture and a people who had been robbed of them. So what he's saying is like he's pointing to the, to the power of an artist and the power of a painting and how properly using power can be a good thing. That it's needed for human flourishing to encourage what is right and good, but it's also easily abused uh, because of our sin nature. I was reading an article this week where they were making the case through some scientific studies that um, that the longer people are in power, it's been shown that we become more impulsive, less risk-aware, and less empathetic to other people. And so power can be very dangerous, but we want it. And it's good in some ways, but, but our tendency then is to idolize it. Um, Tim Keller argues that's one of the reasons our political system is so broken, is that we idolize power. And so our political leaders are our messiahs, and their policies are our saving doctrines, and activism is a form of religion for us. And so when we idolize political power, if we don't have it, what do we want to do? We want to leave the country, and that happens every four years. And because we're battling for power, we can't admit that maybe the other side might say some things that are actually right and that we might actually agree with them on. Uh, we see our idol of political power in the way that we demonize the other side. We demonize those who disagree with us politically. Instead of saying, well, that's wrong, we say that's actually evil. Uh, we idolize power in our relationships. There's a story is told of a man named James who, before he became a believer, he was actually a womanizer, and he would seek out relationships with women. He would sleep with them, and then he would move on to the next woman. Well, this guy was converted. He came to faith in Christ, uh, and he actually went into the ministry. But when he went into the ministry, he was argumentative with everybody, and he always tried to dominate people. Um, he was harsh in the way he interacted with unbelievers even. And his identity wasn't in Christ. It, having power was still what he was all about. It took a sexual form, and then it actually took a religious form. But it was still what he was all about. Uh, just a kind of a helpful diagnostic tool here. If, if anger is something you really struggle with, then there may be an idol of power lurking underneath that 
But, but what if instead of worshiping power, I worship the God who's all-powerful? How would that, how would that shape me? Uh, I, I think I would begin to see power as a gift I've been given to serve others and not as something that I use for my own self-interest. Uh, I might actually attempt great things for God and be less afraid of failure if I knew the God I was worshiping is all powerful. I might be less intimidated by people and have a proper awe of God. I might be less likely to despair and more likely to cry out to the God for whom all things are possible if I worship the God who is powerful instead of worshiping power itself. Well, the psalmist next points us to the plans, to the control of God. Look in verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. We live with the illusion of control, don't we? Um, but when your van dies in the middle of the Navajo reservation and someone you don't know in an old beat-up car who looks like a cast member from Breaking Bad and has a spotlight tied to the side mirror of his car so that he can see the animals that jump out in front of him in the desert is the person guiding you down the road in the middle of the night with your lights off to keep your battery from dying and he leads you to a hospital where you're hopefully going to pop up your camper for the night, but they don't want to let you in at first, and then you break down again, and you call AAA, and they say they can have somebody there at 7.30 in the morning, just hypothetically. And, <laughs> and, and, and the only people that can help you, you're at the mercy of people that you've never met in your life and don't know from Adam. You realize how little control that you actually have. We, we live under this illusion of having control, and yet we're, we're always after it. I think the whole iPhone, find a, phone, find a friend, whatever it's called, where you keep an eye on your kids with your iPhones or your Androids or whatever, I think that just thrives because it gives us the illusion that we have some kind of control. Well, if I see where they are, I can protect them. No, you can't. They're 15 hours away from you. What are you going to do? Right, it, it gives us this illusion of having Control. We are, we are on a giant ball spinning in a circle, hurtling through the universe. And if we were like eight inches closer to the sun, we'd all burn up. And eight inches the other way, we'd all freeze. And yet we, we feel like we're in control. And we want to maintain control. A, a, a diagnostic test for you to, to, to think about whether this is one of your idols. If, if people around you often feel condemned by you. This might be something you're struggling with. If, if your problem emotion is worry, if you just worry a lot, then, then control is probably one of your idols. If your greatest nightmare is not having some aspect of your life in order and sorted out, then control, a control idol is probably at work. But what if I didn't have to worry so much? What if anxiety didn't have that big a grip on me? What if instead of trying to gain control, I worship the God who is in control? How would that shape my life and my thought processes every day? Uh, fourthly, the psalmist points us to a God who 
sees all, and, I, and I'm not going to read all this, I know this is kind of long. I, I, I think the implication in saying that he sees all is saying that he sees all and he evaluates what he sees. He sees what we're really like. Um, that's, that's terrifying to us for another person to see what we're really like. Because we, we, we live for the approval of other people. We want people to like us. Uh, and in our 24-hour, always online world, we, we can begin to feel like we're constantly being evaluated by everyone around us. Bo Burnham is a, a stand-up comic, comic who made it big in the early days of, of YouTube, and he struggles with anxiety and panic attacks. Uh, and, and this was written about, his, about him recently. Toward the end of Make Happy, he asks, What's the show about? He crouches at the edge of the stage and he says this, It's about performing. I try to make my show about other things, but it always ends up becoming about performing. Social media, it's just the market's answer to a generation that demanded to perform. So the market said, here, perform everything to each other all the time for no reason. It's prison. It is horrific. Staring down at the audience, he says, if you can live your life without an audience, you should do it. And shortly afterwards, he abandoned stand-up comedy for two years to live his life without an audience. We feel like we're always on. We're always having to perform. We always need approval. What if I knew that the only one whose approval mattered was God? What if, what if I actually lived my life before his face and not the face of my peers and, and everyone around me? What if I knew that, that when I failed him and even when he corrected me, he would still welcome me and never quit loving me? What if I knew that I always was going to be welcomed at his house and at his table because I'm accepted in Christ? What if I knew that Christ had gained for me eternal approval from the Father? What if I knew that? What if I worshiped that God? How would that shape me? And then finally, the psalmist points us to the God who saves. And and I will read this. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The psalmist points us to a God who saves. Um, I'm just going to read this pretty much without comment. This is from um, an op-ed piece in the New York Times this week called The Podcast Bros Want to Optimize Your Life. And this is how it goes. Do you want to optimize your life? Start your morning with a kale garlic ginger smoothie or better yet, meditate and fast until noon. Next, hit the gym for your mixed martial arts workout and take a cold shower to activate your immune system. Then plan this summer's vision quest. Maybe you'll head to the jungles of Peru where a shaman will brew you some mescaline-laced psychedelic tea. Don't worry, the intense nausea means you're grasping new dimensions of reality. Next, read a book on evolutionary psychology to remind yourself that you're just a social primate with genetically programmed urges. Then read some stoic philosophy to control those urges. 
Take ownership of your day, and soon enough you'll be a millionaire running your own lifestyle coaching empire. Over the past few years, the podcasters have become a significant cultural phenomenon. Spiritual entrepreneurs who are filling the gap left as traditional religious organizations erode and modernity phrase our face-to-face connections with communities and institutions. And then they, they list people like, you probably know, like Joe Rogan or however you say his name, and Tim Ferriss, who's the four-hour workweek guy, and all these guys are out to help us optimize our lives. Uh, she writes, don't dismiss the podcast bros merely as hucksters promoting self-help books and dubious mushroom coffee. In this secularized age of lonely seekers scrolling social media feeds, they have cultivated a spiritual community. They offer theologies and daily rituals of self-actualization an appealing alternative to the rhetoric of victimhood and resentment that permeates both the right and the left. And someone says, they help the masses identify the whole in the soul. I do feel the message is creating a community. Is this a postmodern monastic order, passing on breakfast and shivering in the shower while pondering the next step and mastering the ego? These podcasters lead one of the largest quasi-spiritual self-help denominations in the United States. It is a far-flung virtual community that gives people solace, a regimen and a sense of like-mindedness at a time when churches and other old-fashioned institutions simultaneously seem to ask too much, yet also fail to provide many people with whatever they're looking for. I just read that and I say, and we probably all picked up, maybe you're not into the podcast, but we've all picked up snippets of this. What if, what if I believe that salvation was of the Lord and not by my self-improvement? What if my hope wasn't in my ability to save myself or to improve myself? What if I, I just didn't trust in my ability that much, period? What if, what if entrance to heaven actually were by God's grace? And not by my works. Wouldn't believing that change everything? Well, the sermon was too long, but we're going to end with the response of God's people. I want you to look at how God's people respond to, to having the character of God and, and the power of God and all these attributes of God laid out to them. Verse 20 Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. What if you and I were to join them in worshiping God? How would that shape our lives? Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would not just be a... uh, theoretical God to us or a theological concept but that we would actually sit down perhaps today and and think through who you are and that we wouldn't just do it today that we would do it every day and that we become to believe who you are and worship you for who you are and in worshiping you I pray that would change us and that that would make us uh, healthy in every way we pray in Christ's name amen